Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L. On Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. Cats at Night. Now, here's John Katsimatidis. This is John Katsimatidis, Cats at Night. We have one great show for you today and uh, a lot of revelations. You'll find out what the heck is going on in the, in our city and the world. In the studio with us, we got Judge Richard Weinberg. We have Ed Cox, 10 years chairman of, of uh, New York State uh, GOP. And... How many years do we have? Uh, we have Governor Patterson. How many years you were chairman of uh, the uh, Democratic GOP? Three. Uh, I was uh, just the tutored. Democratic uh, compared to uh, Mr. Cox. We overlapped and we got years. some good things done. We sure did. <laughs> some common sense prevailed. And Lydia, we have breaking news. Breaking news. WABC. And with that breaking news is John Solomon, intrepid investigative reporter extraordinaire of JustTheNews.com. That's JustTheNews.com. Tell us all about this breaking news, the judge ordering the release of the redacted Mar-a-Lago affidavit. That's right. By noon tomorrow, we're going to get to see what the Justice Department feels comfortable about talking about why they raided President Trump's estate. Uh, Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt this evening, this afternoon, Ordered that release. He got a chance to see the redacted version, felt it was comfortable, told the Justice Department, put it out by noon tomorrow. That's the, the next step in the process, and we'll see. Oftentimes, the Justice Department is reluctant to put a lot of information out there. But I'll, I'll make a prediction. I think there's been a series of leaks in the New York Times and Washington Post designed to get things into the public realm so that they can tell the judge, oh, we can release that part, we can release that part. I think we'll see some affirmation of some of the things that have been in the New York Times and Washington Post and as official leaks from the Justice Department uh, as part of that. I don't think it'll move the story much further than that. But isn't it also relevant, John, that uh, who the person is, he, he, like we, we discussed in the past uh, uh, with Justice Kavanaugh, where the woman didn't even know where she was or what house it was or what city it was? Right. Who who is this informant? I mean, it's got to be. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure know who an the informant, informant is. <clears throat> yeah, I think? I think what you probably have are some people that were brought before the grand jury, asked questions, and provided information that filled in blanks for the. thing. I don't think there's going to be some secret confidential human source that's on the payroll. I don't get the sense of that in my reporting. Uh, but listen, people know that it's a lot of times these, unlike a trial. Uh, search warrants can be based on hearsay. We saw that significantly in the FISA warrants. Remember, the, most of the people had no direct knowledge of the things they were telling the FBI, and yet they were able to get a FISA warrant. There's a low bar for the evidence of a, of a search warrant. Hearsay is fine. Uh, vague recollections are fine for the purpose of a search. Uh, I think it really is going to come down to what did they, uh, what were they looking for, and why were they looking for it? And then here's the question we don't know. Has the Justice Department given any thought to the possibility that the, even though there were uh, markings on the documents, classified markings that the president had declassified them, have they given any thought that he had made decisions to declare some records personal? All these things are allowed under the laws. I've been writing about all the different things that a president can do unilaterally. It doesn't look like the Justice Department gave much thought uh, to that idea. And I think what will happen is this will just be one step and then a lot more litigation is going to move forward. The president, uh, President Trump has been asked to tell the judge, a uh, different judge, what do they want a special master to look for? Is it to protect privilege? Is it to protect attorney-client privilege? 
to go back and look at an overzealous search. We're going to find out what the Trump people want to do as well. And we're in for a long legal haul now. This is going to be a long battle. And and, and the whistleblowers, uh, John, uh, do we know much about what they're whistleblowing about? The FBI agents. Yeah, we sure do. Yeah, we do. Uh, uh, last night, Senator Ron Johnson put out some new information. Uh, first time we've been hearing a lot about efforts to thwart the Hunter Biden investigation inside the FBI. By the way, during the 2020 election, not unlike what I experienced when I was at the Hill and they were trying to uh, stop people from picking up or taking tr- trusting my stories that the Biden administration or Biden team attacked at. Then they attacked the laptop when it came out. But what we now know is there's a senior whistleblower inside the FBI who reveals that the leadership of the FBI instructed FBI agents not to investigate the Hunter Biden laptop. They were instructed, don't look at that. Not, not even whether it was legitimate or not. It didn't even come down to legitimacy. It was like, we're not doing this in an election. That's not the way the FBI should be thinking. The FBI should be thinking, is there a crime? Is there a need here? Is there intelligence? If these whistleblowers are telling us the truth, we're seeing politics being substituted for court and legal and law enforcement decisions. And then we know a second realm. All right, we got Hunter Biden, an effort to thwart that investigation. That's now back on track, but there was an effort to stop it. Let's go to the flip side. The same whistleblowers are telling um, Senator Charles Grassley, a different senator, uh, we, there was an opening of an investigation on Donald Trump that came from suspect liberal sources, just like the Hillary Clinton Steele dossier came from. It didn't meet the threshold to, uh, for a predicate to justify opening a case, and they opened up a case on Donald Trump anyway. So it came from Democrats. It didn't meet the evidentiary test, and we opened up on him. So one guy, there's real evidence, Hunter Biden, but because he's a Democrat, they don't open up on or they're trying to stop it. The other one, there's not real uh, trustworthy evidence, and they're opening up, and he's a Republican, Donald Trump. Dual system of justice. We've heard a lot about that the last five years. These whistleblowers seem to be affirming it in a very uh, extensive way. President Biden was very adamant yesterday when he was questioned whether or not he gave the go or if he even knew about the Trump raid. And he said, yeah. I did not know. Uh, I don't know anything. What, have right. you heard anything to the contrary? Do we have any proof that the president well, I think we asked know? the wrong question, right? Um, I doubt, uh, and uh, I've always reported uh, that President Biden wasn't told, and I've had that from law enforcement officials. So I have no reason to think that he had a prior heads up that they were going to raid President Trump's compound. But what we do know, it's irrefutable now because I put the documents into the public realm, the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Hill and every other major news organization now affirmed what I, the story I broke Monday. There are a series of correspondences, uh, which I got a hold of, uh, that show that in April and May, the Biden administration and President Biden himself was at the origin point, the instigation point of this investigation. And let me give you the specifics of what I mean. In April, when the, after the uh, National Archives had reviewed some of the materials that President Trump had returned to the archives, President Trump personally authorized, through his White House counsel, for the National Archives to send that evidence to the FBI, basically triggering a criminal investigation. The, uh, the uh, president then, because the FBI asked, said, I will not invoke pres- executive privilege on behalf of President Trump, and you, the National Archives, if you would like to do so, on my behalf, you can waive President Trump's executive privilege. And they did that. In that small window, Joe Biden had two significant impacts on the future of his opposition party leader, of the man who likely to run against him in 2024. First, he helped initiate a criminal investigation by transmitting the documents, and then he helped take away 
one of the main legal defenses or legal challenges that President Trump might use to contest the FBI coming in and just taking and looking and rifling through his records. Um, that is irrefutable. And the question was asked wrong yesterday. The question shouldn't be, did you know about the raid or not? The question is, what role did you play in, in helping the FBI get this started? No reporter asked that question. Well, thank you so much, John Solomon. Again, that's John Solomon of JustTheNews.com. Thank you for all that you do. Wow. A lot wow. of breaking news, a lot what, of stuff you, going on. What do you think, guys? No doubt the president was behind this raid on uh, Donald Trump's home at Mar-a-Lago. And wasn't it back in April, too, that the New York Times had an article that Biden was criticizing Merrick Garland, the, uh, you know, the attorney general, that he wasn't doing enough to, enough to go after Trump. So then it, he kind of indirectly he used the New York Times as a little conduit to get to Garland, get him the message, almost like the mafia, like, you know, you better get him or else. Uh, and I think that's what Garland did. Yeah. Attorney General Garland looked very nervous when he got up there, and made his short little statement. And, uh, and he was don't responsible. The FBI, FBI director was not standing next to him like they usually do. Exactly. He well, wanted you know, to as far away from it as I he could be. we have a guest on the line. That's right. We have Miranda Devine, New York Post columnist, and her book, uh, Laptop from Hell, regarding Hunter Biden. Once again, we're hearing again about this laptop, and the FBI wasn't, was they whistleblowers to Senator Ron Johnson, as you heard uh, John Solomon also touched upon it. What do you know that the FBI was specifically told to hands off the Hunter Biden laptop? That's right. And this is, again, um, I'm sure John's just told you, uh, coming from uh, at least 14 whistleblowers from the FBI who've okay. come forward to uh, Republicans like Ron Johnson and Chuck Grasley. And uh, it, basically telling us what we really knew, uh, but it's just in, in detail and confirming it, that the FBI, ha who had had the laptop, since December of 2019, the actual laptop that Hunter Biden left behind at John Paul MacIsaac's repair shop in Delaware, he gave it to the FBI because he thought that there was material on there that he had seen um, that he thought was important to national security and might be uh, exculpatory evidence for Donald Trump in his upcoming impeachment. And he had had the laptop since uh, April of that year. He had done nothing with it. Hunter refused to pick it up. And so John Paul MacIsaac is a patriot. He thought he was doing the right thing. He contacted the FBI. He had a very odd uh, interaction with one of the agents who he felt was threatening him, saying, you know, keep your mouth shut. Um, that laptop we never saw again. It just was buried by the FBI. Um, now we find out from these whistleblowers that Ron Johnson's been talking to that there was actually an edict that went out not to touch it. You cannot touch it because we don't want to be interfering with the election, the November 2020 election. And so they've had it since December 2019, 11 months. They think they can't interfere with it yet. Um, you know, 90 days before the midterms, they're quite happy to raid Donald Trump's house. Withholding evidence or important story, that's not impacting the election, Miranda? Sorry? When you win, withhold evidence, important facts about Hunter Biden's laptop, you don't think the very fact of withholding will influence an election if that's their standard? Of course. Exactly. It's, it's by doing nothing 
by not allowing the American people to understand exactly what they were voting for, uh, they have put their fingers on the scale and that's exactly what they wanted to do because we know that there is a cabal of FBI agents and analysts, uh, particularly in the Washington DC field office, who are partisans. And uh, we also know that um, the, the guy who's in charge of the January 6th investigation from the Washington field office was promoted there after the fiasco with the Gretchen Whitmer case. Uh, we also know that uh, there, there is an agent and an analyst, Tim Tebolt and uh, Brian Orton, who also uh, put their hand on the scale of justice before the election and uh, were describing this laptop, one of them, as Russian disinformation and basically dissuading um, any investigations into it. And so uh, what we see is that material that was very embarrassing to Joe Biden was buried by the FBI. And at the same time, by the way, when we're, they were withholding this important evidence, 51 so-called experts, security experts, national intelligence experts, went out and said that this sounds exactly like Russian disinformation and the FBI knew better or should have known better. Yes. I mean, there was just, uh, you know, this, I don't know if you can call it collusion because we have no evidence that they they talked to each other, but it was a very coincidental parallel censorship and it was John Brennan, James Clapper, uh, Leon Panetta, four former heads of the CIA and, um, you know, um, dozens of other former high-level uh, intelligence operatives. They wrote that letter just uh, three or four days after we published the first of our stories about coming from the laptop. And uh, they said, without looking at it, that it, they didn't use this language, but they said it was Russian disinformation. They called it information, but that's what they meant. And that's how it was read by all the headlines. And that just gave uh, Joe Biden the get-out-of-jail-free card he needed when he went into that last debate against Donald Trump. Of course, Donald brought up the laptop. And, of course, Joe Biden pulls out this letter, you know, metaphorically, and uh, and 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 he 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 exaggerates it. He says this is the intelligence community. They've looked at it and they've decided that's Russian disinformation. You're the problem, and uh, and it worked for him because he, there's a compliant media that didn't want Donald Trump to win. So all they needed was a couple of fig leaves, and uh, that's what John Brennan gave them. This is what the FBI managed to do. And then at the same time, you had uh, big tech also censoring Facebook and Twitter, censoring the New York Post. Uh, Twitter locked us down for two weeks and uh, only unlocked our account a few days before the election. Miranda Devine, speaking of misinformation, let's talk about this raid and all the leaks that have come out of it. And now President Biden is insisting he had no advance notice of the FBI raid. That we're expecting the affidavit to be released, redacted affidavit to be released uh, by noon tomorrow. What are you hearing? I re- you you remember the Washington Post said there was nuclear codes and like all these this nonsensical, uh, you know, like uh, what was it? Chatter, I guess that we have no proof about to this state. So what are you hearing? Lydia, it's called trial by leaks. That's right. what they're doing. Right. While they're not disclosing, they're probably going to. Uh, 
basically black out most of the affidavit. They want us to believe that he had nuclear codes or some sort of national security evidence. And meanwhile, they took, what, 11 days before they executed the warrant? They took the weekend off and... So and now President Biden says he had no advance notice of the FBI raid. But we heard just from John Solomon that he obviously played some sort of role in this. What do you know, Miranda? Well, look, the leaks uh, really make a mockery of this attempt by the DOJ to to not release the affidavit, to uh, extensively redact it is, is what we're expecting uh, when it when it is finally released. Um, and because everything that could be on the affidavit, uh, much of it is has already been published in, of course, the same publications that ran all the leaks during the Russia collusion hoax, the Washington Post and the New York Times. Uh, they're all uh, selective leaks designed to make uh, Donald Trump look bad, designed to get the DOJ off the hook for what was a really botched we'll take a break trade. Now. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, sorry. No, 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 no. Sorry, Miranda. Um, so, I mean, yeah, the, the leaks, how redacted we have to break. That's what we were talking about. How redacted do you think this document will be? Will there be any sort of information in it, the affidavit? Look, I'll be very surprised if there's anything of worthwhile in there. I know that on the day of the raid, uh, Christina Bob, one of um, uh, Trump's lawyers, uh, was told by uh, some of the DOJ lawyers, at the scene that she couldn't see the affidavit because they wanted to protect a confidential human source, whoever that is, who told them, uh, you know, gave them the, the uh, I guess, the, the reason to, to do the raid. Um, and so that's fair enough. You would expect them to hide the name, redact the name of whoever their source was. But there's no excuse to redact really anything else. Um, if, if they're going to charge President Trump, then it will all come out in court anyway. Um, and the secrecy is uh, completely at odds with the leaking. And uh, if, if Merrick Garland and Christopher Wray cannot control their troops, uh, it's either they can't control them or they are authorising the leaks. Either way, really bad. You ca- you ha- cannot keep the American public in the dark about something so momentous, so potentially divisive as raiding the home of a former president and probable future, uh, you know, competitor. With, with machine guns. And by the way, he had the right yeah. to have those papers. As a uh, under the Presidential Papers Act that was passed uh, in the seventies after Watergate. Well, thank well, this you. This is right. This is a legal uh, discussion. It doesn't need to be prosecuted with machine guns. Machine and guns. And, who, and, who are they going to fight? And, and the, the Secret Service was going to shoot it out with the with the FBI. I mean, what kind of nonsense is going on in this world? Well, thank you so much, Miranda Devine of the New York Post. We look forward to your next column again. This is Miranda Devine. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you. Thank you. And when we come back, we have a lot more to talk about. Keep it right here, Cats at Night. Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. 
It's Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. With us now is Charlie Gasparino. Uh, and uh, Charlie, what the heck is going on in Wall Street? What's going to happen well, tomorrow? You know, Wall Street is a – I mean, listen, I don't know. Uh, and I – this could be two things. Wall Street could be correctly reading the tea leaves, the Powell tea leaves, that he's going to back off raising interest rates. Or this is a classic, and that's you know considered at least short term good for the market. I mean, who knows long term because that often means that we're heading for a recession. Uh, but you know it could be a classic you know misdirection and, and misreading of, of his intentions. And you know just so you know, the, the Fed has been Fed governors, including Neil Kashkari of the Minneapolis Fed, have been very clear that there is a need to raise rates at another seventy five basis points and maybe an, and another one after that. So, and inflation is still an issue. So, uh, you know, your guess is as good as mine. We'll see what Powell says. And if he signals, obviously, that it's, you know, one and done, well, the markets are going to like that in the short term. But, you know, here's the thing. Uh, Okay, let's just say he backs off raising rates one and done. You do realize he's doing that because we're heading for a recession. I mean, he really thinks an economic slowdown is is picking up steam. That's generally not good for corporate earnings, and that's generally not good for stocks. So, you know, again, this is not a science; it's an art form. And uh, you know, there's a there's a short term play, which if he if he signals one and done, that's probably good for you know for the near term. But you know, who knows about the long term? Well, you but, know, and again, we could, we could all be misreading this too. <laughs> well, so basically, the, the, as me and you talked about, and uh, the real estate market is starting to feel it. I mean, uh, it's being really? felt yeah. in all sectors, uh, construction sectors, uh, uh, building of new homes, uh, and people tearing up um, mortgage, rates, uh, mortgage rates going from 3% to 6%. Yeah. And then, well, <laughs> the problem is, do we? Have, what is the inflation rate right now? I mean, if it's... Well, it if depends. We it, 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 it depends if you read the tea leaves from thirty days ago or, to, or, or next month's. Right. I mean, but if you think the inflation rate is going down to five percent, and that's that's good. Remember, the the, the, tar- the stated target is two. Uh, you know, you got to raise rates more. I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, and here's the other thing that I think the Fed it's kind of playing with fire with some of this stuff. If you're going to go around running around saying. We, we're committed to wiping out inflation. We're committed to the 2% target. Now, I'm not saying I'm committed to it. They're saying they're, they're committed to it. I'm not quite sure what's so magical about 2%. Borrowing a phrase from Larry Fink, who said that to, to Neil Kashkari. Larry's the CEO of BlackRock and one of the more sophisticated invest, uh, bond investors out there. But if you say you're committed to 2 and you're committed to getting rid of inflation, well, and you start backing off now because – it's at five or six. Well, that's you know that's the way you lose credibility. It's the Fed, it's the trust. Fed it's the Fed put all over again, isn't it? Which has been going now yeah, for twenty years. That no matter how many comments you have in the Fed, there's only one person who's going to make the decision. That's right. How? How? But you know the Fed the Fed put is okay when you have two percent unemployment. I mean, excuse me, two percent uh, inflation. Right. The, the, the Volcker Volcker rule is the Volcker rule is that you have to have interest rates over the rate of inflation, according to the Fed. On their estimate, it's at six percent the core inflation, and well, interest rates, uh, short-term rates, are just the three percent. It's got a long way to go. There you go. So now, suppose you say we're just going to throw that out all of a sudden. Uh, I mean, you know, you, you now obviously, he's, I'm sure the White House and Elizabeth Warren is pressuring Powell. Um, 
do you give into that? And uh, so there's a lot riding on this. Uh, okay, you yeah. know, you don't want to. I mean, I don't want to say let's have a recession, but if you think getting it over with fast, with higher interest rates that squeezes out inflation and then you get the recession over with, is better than you know death by a thousand cuts like. You know, we had in the 70s. Remember, they kept going back. Oh, late 70s. Late late it was stagflation then, and the White House, the right. one thing they don't want to have going into these midterms is stagflation like the 70s. Yeah, uh, you might not be able to. Listen, I, I think that you might have to take your medicine fast here. And, well, uh, because the 70s, remember, they kept going back and forth. They vacillated. Cutting rates, bringing up rates, doing all this stuff. And then you never got rid of inflation. And Volcker had a company literally... We'll, we'll know by 2 o'clock tomorrow. Thank you, Charlie Gasparino, and uh, we'll, exactly. we'll talk tomorrow. Take care. Talk tomorrow. Bye. And let, let's go to Lou Dobbs and see how today's market was. This is Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Welcome back to the John Katz Matidis Cats at Night show. Now we're coming back to New York City. We've got to save our city, John, right? We're going to talk to Nicole Galinas. She is a contributing editor to the Manhattan Institute City Journal and also writer for the New York Post. And when it comes to the MTA, subway and crime, nobody knows it better than Nicole Galinas. Nicole, tell us, what is the latest on the MTA's congestion pricing plan? I know they're having their first virtual hearing tonight at 5. There was a big rally by cab drivers, Lyft and Uber yesterday. Obviously, their industry would be decimated by this. So tell us what's the latest on the congestion pricing plan. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Well, I guess we have something to do during this supposedly slow month of August with all of these rallies and almost a 1,000 people signing up for the virtual hearings that started a half an hour ago. So where are we with congestion pricing? Uh, to back up and give people the short history, the state, when Cuomo was governor, passed the congestion pricing law in 2019. So that was three and a half years ago as part of that year's uh, budget, passed the law that allowed the MTA to create this program to raise a billion dollars a year from drivers coming into Manhattan below 60th Street. And that money is supposed to go to transit infrastructure improvement. So here we are three and a half years along we finally have these hundreds of pages of environmental documents that the Biden and the Hochul administrations delayed for months and months and months. I mean, remember, congestion pricing was supposed to start uh, early 2021. It's going to be at least two years late. So why did Biden and Hochul uh, delay and delay and delay the release of these documents? Well, now we kind of have some hints why. This will increase traffic in the Bronx. You'll have anywhere from 200 to 700 more trucks going across the Cross Bronx Expressway every day, even though people promised for years congestion pricing will reduce asthma in the South Bronx. It will help every New York neighborhood by reducing traffic everywhere throughout the city. And, you know, there's a I mean, other- the, the Cross uh, County, uh, the Cross Bronx. Bronx Expressway is dead. It's dead in its tracks already. I mean, how can you re-increase trucks? I know. It's already completely congested. Yeah. And why is this yeah. good for the environment? I must have missed something. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing. You know, that we have seven different scenarios. You know, the MTA has released seven ideas. It could cost $9 to $23 to drive into Manhattan at peak times depending on which of the plans they pick. But in all of them, 
the truck traffic on the Cross Bronx will increase. Now, some of the congestion pricing advocates are saying that's not true. Other private models say truck traffic on the Cross Bronx wouldn't increase. But the fact that they couldn't even get one of their own models to show a neutral result for the Cross Bronx, it doesn't bode well. And, you know, for, for 70 years since we built the Cross Bronx, transportation advocates have been saying this the Cross Bronx is a racist highway. It was the original sin. We sent all the traffic from Manhattan to the Bronx and we have to undo these mistakes. And then we have this plan that comes out, says it'll increase traffic on the Cross Bronx, and the advocates kind of say, eh, you know, we'll fix that later. It doesn't really bode well for coming up with a better plan over the next couple months. What's to happened- that point, oh, uh, Nicole, this is David Patterson. My Hi, question, David. how are you? Good, um, Governor, sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, who is actually making the final decisions on this? In other words, they're kicking it back and forth. But who's actually the one that's actually going to be able to basically change the destiny of the whole city? Ultimately, it's the governor. I mean, you know, because you you, you had this job. The governor is in charge of the MTA. The MTA board eventually will vote on all of these things. What is the toll? Do you get a credit for going through the Lincoln Tunnel? Do you get a credit on the George Washington Bridge? Uh, what what do you do about cabs? We haven't even they haven't even thought uh, well they've thought about it, but they have not come to a decision on cabs. Keep in mind they've had three and a half years to think about this, but ultimately <laughs> it will be the governor to to pull push the button on this thing or not. And what happens that about means if you go through the Midtown Tunnel, it could be fifteen dollars plus. Yes. Like $23, $38 to go to the Midtown Tunnel? Yeah, it'll be like 50 bucks just to come into the city. That'd now, be what... very good for the New York City economy. Oh, absolutely. So in London, what's happened there, because they have congestion oh, pricing we had, there. Uh, we had yes. one of the people on from London yesterday. From Boris Johnson's cabinet. And she said that London, that center area, has now become like a ghost town. Everybody's on their bikes, but it's super flat there. And she said, but outside of that area, it's uh, completely congested. And we'll probably see a lot of, you know, cabs or whatever cars double park like above 60th street is that what you're hearing as well i mean obviously it didn't work well in london so why the heck do they think it would work well here right so in other words you're moving the congestion from the central business district to the circumference of the city correct that's where the the uh, exactly wow the, the always suffering outer boroughs right? the I'm, outer I'm boroughs no, and have, anybody uh, above 60th above, yeah the, the people so, suffering Will be the people above 60th Street. It's ridiculous. So it's and not all good of you for the guys environment. Live above 60th. Yeah, but it's not good for the environment. It's not good for the economy. It's not good for tourism. It's not good for all the stores and the restaurants pockets. and the theater. It's the most ridiculous proposal in the world, and yet they won't give it up. And meanwhile, the subways are still too dangerous to to take. Uh, Nicole, what are you hearing? Yeah, and I just you know wanted to also mention uh, Congresswoman Maliotakis. She has a point. I know she's talking tonight at the at the hearing that uh, Staten Island, in some of the earlier proposals for congestion pricing, which Sam Schwartz very thoughtfully put together, the toll on the Verrazano Narrows would have been cut because the whole idea was there's no direct rapid transit from Staten Island to Midtown. So in return for playing, paying for the congestion fee, the toll on the Staten Island uh, Brooklyn crossing would be cut. It wouldn't be zero, but it would be cut. And that has completely disappeared from this plan. 
with no explanation. So that was an important thing many years ago to try to get Staten Islanders on board. It just totally disappeared. And in addition to the Bronx getting more traffic, Staten Island will also see more traffic according to these environmental documents. So they do have a real uh, legitimate concern. I mean, what benefit is Staten Island getting in return for having a, a second toll and bearing more traffic on the Staten Island railroads. Really good point. But so what, Nicole, it, so they're Nicole. just saying they don't they don't know. You know what? They're they're full of crap. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, another I good point. Blame, yeah, I don't blame the MTA. You know, they no. they are working within a highly inflexible law that was created three and a half years ago before COVID. Uh, lots of issues here, oh, the governor. and it's it's the state. Ultimately, it's the state legislature and the governor. Yep, I agree with you. Well, thank you so much, Nicole. Thank Nicole Galinas. Thank you so much for all that you do. And we're going to continue the conversation regarding state and uh, the politics here in New York. Right now, we have Fred Dicker on the line. Welcome back to Cats at Night, Fred. Well, thank you very much. Greetings from Albany. What the heck is going on up in Albany? Well, I think a lot less than people thought would be going on. The results of the primary on Tuesday has been very disappointing to many Republicans, as you might imagine. The Democrats are pounding their chest, but the bellwether vote in that key uh, congressional race uh, really disappointed a great many um, Republicans. Mark Molinaro uh, should have won it. He lost uh, to Pat Ryan. And the implications of that for Lee Zeldin are very serious. Uh, Zeldin's campaign probably, in a way, was hurt more than Mark Molinaro's by the results there, because Zeldin was supposed to look to that Mark Molinaro race as an indication of what was going to happen to his own race. Well, what, as you know, uh, Ed Cox here, Fred, as Hi, you Ed. know, what Pat Ryan did was he ran on abortion. Let's make this a referendum on abortion and drove out. Uh, the uh, a good portion of his base, while Mark Molinaro ran on the economic issues, the more general uh, election issues that uh, didn't get out uh, the uh, his base, and that was the difference. So, is the mistake here that uh, Republicans underestimated just how important the abortion issue is to voters? Not to a general. In the general, it's going to be different. It's going to be the economic issues and crime, and abortion ranks very low on what on its impact. Fred Dicker, what do you think? Well, well, a couple of things. One, Mark Molinaro was not a good candidate. He was viewed by many Republicans, and is still viewed by many Republicans, as, as something of a half-committed Republican. Remember, he didn't even vote for Donald Trump the first time around. He's seen by many as a rhino. And secondly, when you are with Mark Molinaro, he kind of leaves you with a feeling that he's wishy-washy. So the Republican base didn't come out. It wasn't just a matter of the abortion issue by itself, but Mark Molinaro was a bad candidate. Let me just also note on Monday, Governor Hochul, in a jaw-dropping statement, said, as you know, if you, if you have the views of a Mark Molinaro or a Lee Zeldin, you should go to Florida. Conservatives or moderates don't belong in New York. Well, in response to that, Lee Zeldin said, I'm going to Molinaro's a district, and he did on Monday. I'm going to campaign with him, and the next day, Molinaro loses. I mean, it was a real setback, not just for uh, Mark Molinaro, but for Lee Zeldin. In the same day, a poll came out from an Albany TV station <clears throat> done by Survey USA, which is a known polling company that gave Hochul a 24-point lead over Lee Zeldin. Now, I don't believe that poll, but it was very damaging, as was 
the Mark Molinaro race. The critical thing for Republicans in New York, certainly as Ed Cox knows, the former chairman, is to win the governorship. But right now, it's not looking very good. Fred, this is uh, David Patterson. How are you? Hey, Governor. How are you? I'm great. (laughs) So, uh, but in the end, even though everything you said is, I think, spot on, and I don't know that I believe that it's a 24-point lead, but I'd say maybe 10 to 15. I don't know what you think. But the I think that uh, as Democrats, we can really get hyperbolic over one win. I mean, somebody can win a city council race, and all of a sudden that's the end of uh, uh, you know all these other problems we're having. So it, there's still a lot to, to happen before November. And Pat Ryan was a good candidate. I was going to say, this was being looked at nationally as a bellwether. It's just not us in New York talking about it. It's being talked about by Larry Sabato. It's being talked about on all the national TV political shows. This was a critical race. By the way, it's also a setback for Elise Stefanik, who should have been you know, using the tremendous influence and access to money that she has to help Mark Molinaro. She didn't, by the way, just suffer one defeat, but she suffered an incredible second defeat with the defeat of Carl Palladino out in the Erie County area, in Southern Tier area. Good point. But that helped save the Republican brand, don't you think, with Paladino going down? Well, Paladino's finished now. You may recall I had some experience with Carl Paladino. (laughs) I think they called it the Battle of Bolton Landing. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, We have uh, the lady that's running against uh, AOC. AOC. If you'd like, you can stay on... uh, yeah, right. Tina. Her name is Tina Forte. She Forte means strong. She grew up in the Throgs Neck area of the Bronx, and she learned the value of hard work and love of country from her father, who's a Marine Corps veteran. Her mom was an entrepreneur, and she knows that through perseverance and hard work, she could achieve the American dream. And now she's running against Alexandria Casio Cortez. Tina Forte, welcome to Cats at Night. Thank you. How are you? We're doing well. So. We, you know, AOC, she's become, I guess, the poster child of everything that's wrong with the Democratic Party. And this is a Democratic city. How do you think you'll be able to overcome that monumentous hurdle being a Republican? Because I'm a boots on the ground type person. I love the people. I go out there. I knock on doors. I go to the freedom rallies. I fight for our kids. I'm a fighter. And I don't just sit behind my computer and tweet things out. I'm I'm out there. I'm out in the streets. I'm I'm a people person. I own a business. I have grandchildren. I came into this race not because I'm a politician, but because I'm a regular person. And people respect that. Right. You went viral first on social media. Yes, I became viral on social media after I almost died of COVID. You can hear it in my voice. I have a little voice problem today. Um, I almost died of COVID. I was in the hospital. And after that, I just. I just went nuts after that, to be honest. Not like nuts crazy, but I just started letting out how I feel, and I just started ranting, and people liked what I had to say. And then after everything that happened with the power grabs in New York with Cuomo and the Blasio acting like the stars that they are, I decided to jump in the race because I had enough. I so, had enough of a lot of people. had enough. So, Ms. Forte, this is David Patterson. I wanted to know if, if um, you have... To understand that even though you're running against AOC, which is going to make it a more high-profile race, you're still running in a heavily Democratic district. What are the issues that you want to convince Democrats you would be better able to handle than the current uh, congressperson? 
I mean, definitely uh, crime because crime is getting worse and worse. You know, you have woke politicians like AOC. They gave us the no bail nonsense, letting violent criminals out on the streets. She pushed to cut the police budget, and she also opposed placing the police on subways. And she actually wrote that in a letter claiming that more police are racist and people are suffering. Minorities are suffering when, in fact, the crime disproportionately affects minorities. She also supports the woke district attorneys who will not prosecute criminals. Safety and crime is a very big issue. I also feel CRT is a big issue. Better schools. I think there should be school choice. I think we need more freedoms. These politicians have a power grab on us. But the main issue right now affecting the Bronx and the Queens is crime. Out of control. Inflation is out of control. I want to lower taxes because New York has suffered the highest tax burden in America, and they still can't get good government service. Let's immediately reverse the funding for the mega size of the IRS and stop them from harassing Americans, hardworking Americans like me who own a business since 1997 in the district. Well, thank I'm you. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. That's Tina. That's why she's losing her voice. Well, thank you so much, Tina Forte. Thank you for all that you do, and come back anytime. Thank you so much. Sorry I went on a little rant there. No, no, I right. love great. it. Oh, great. great. And thank it. you, Fred Dicker, for uh, coming thank on you and, uh, so much. and giving us the pulse of Albany. Fred Dicker, is it possible right. to take AOC down? I don't think so, at least unless you have $10 million to spend. And I don't think that the very distinguished uh, woman who's making a kind of Herculean effort to run against uh, AOC is going to have that kind of money. Well, isn't that a shame? Well, maybe God will be with her. You never know. You never know. I mean, you never know. If a bartender can become the most powerful congresswoman in the country, you never know. That's AOC. (laughs) Keep it right here. Cats at Night. When we come back, we are going to be speaking with Dr. Mark Siegel. Cats at Night. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. This is Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Welcome back to the John Katzmatidis Cats at Night show. Now to one of our favorite doctors, uh, Dr. Mark Siegel. How are you, doctor? What do you mean, one of your favorite doctors? Well, we I love Dr. Mikolos. We have two. Oh, we have oh, two oh, we, we love. Okay. We love he's Dr. Actually, Mikolos. Right, he's your favorite doctor. I'll take oh, him. No, no, no. <laughs> we have two favorite doctors, <laughs> let the record reflect. Yes. Uh, he, he, he's the genius, you're the deputy genius. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. I'm happy to carry his bags, especially if he keeps my eyesight intact. Yeah. <laughs> so, John, you, you got a phone call. Or, I got a or, phone call from uh, our friend Dennis from the breakfast uh, the, uh, the, uh, on Saturday. Good man, yeah. And, and he says he took what? Paxilvid. And uh, that it adversely affected him. And, and it happens to, it's been happening to a lot of people. What do you hear about that? 
I like Paxlovid, especially for those over 65. We just got a study out of the New England Journal of Medicine that for people over 65, it, de- it definitely decreases your risk of being in the hospital. But it has a big metallic taste, and it can cause diarrhea, and it doesn't always give you the full impact, and it wears off. So it's not a perfect situation, but it does decrease severity. So I use it. I use it, but I use it in the right people. Now, I also think... And I think I think you guys, especially John, agrees with this, that the monoclonal and Mykonos agrees with Mykonos agrees with this, too. The monoclonal antibodies are being underutilized. We, the the Beptilovimab actually works against this. And there's a scarcity of it, which is another one of the untold or only partly told stories of this administration. They haven't been great on the tools we need. And that monoclonal antibody is a really good option, and it works really well. Those are the two tools I use. I'm for Paxlovid, but, uh, but only, only with certain caveats. Now, Dr. Jill Biden, she also tested positive again. Are, are these people even contagious at this point? Because no, not well, everybody is going to get tested of time even but after. Why, she, she is the uh, president's wife. Why is she getting antibodies? I don't know. Well, we did you ask? Uh, you did. You did ask actually why the president didn't get the antibodies. I mean, I you know I I'm mind boggled over that. And her testing positive has to do with the point I'm making that the Paxlovid works, but then in the end it doesn't work a hundred percent, and the virus rears back to some extent. And can she be contagious when she becomes positive again? Absolutely. Monoclonal antibodies. Uh, president Trump got them when he got COVID. Mm-hmm. And, and well, he, he was running downstairs one day later. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He got a different set of antibodies. It was a different virus in those days. But we have a very good monoclonal against this. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought it up. I I feel the same way. I've got a guy hidden up in, uh, I won't mention his name. In fact, John would love this guy because he's he's somebody you collect. There's a real gem of a doctor up there in White Plains that gets me these antibodies real quickly. And I've had that guy helping me since the beginning of the pandemic. He's phenomenal. Oh, wow, that's good to well, know. That's good news. So what, what, what else would you like tape. to report to our audience today? Well, you know, I actually wrote a piece in USA Today today about monkeypox and about how the CDC actually did some of what they said they were going to do. Everything went online. They actually came out with a survey of gay and bisexual men and found out that they've decreased the multiplicity of partners by 50%, the amount of online dating, so to speak, by 50%, uh, all of this shows that that public education is actually working because it's definitely people that have multiple partners that are most likely to be infected. We still don't got enough of the vaccine. We still got the the, the, uh, the, the T-pox, the treatment that's tied up in, in red tape. But at least we're getting some response in terms of the communities most involved being more cautious. And I like that CDC is getting a little bit more giving us data in real time. Doctor, what about the new vaccines been improved in Great Britain? I understand will soon be available here with respect that is effective with respect to uh, the new variants. Actually, for once, we're doing it better because the UK's vaccine is really against the BA1. And it doesn't have a lot of bang for the buck against the BA5. But Moderna is about to come out with one that, that, that will nail the BA5. And Pfizer, maybe a little less so. But the, these vaccines are going to be available sometime in September. And so I think, I think that th- that's the shot you should get. And I think it will help. And I've, I've, been, I've been reading that uh, people that do contract monkeypox when they're diagnosed, they often have another 
some sort of other sexually transmitted disease. A lot of them are also testing positive for HIV. Yeah, that's that's for sure. And then there's a, the other pos- problem, which is how do we know it's even monkeypox? Because we're seeing a lot of syphilis that looks like it and, and herpes rashes look like it. So you, re- you really got to know what you're doing. But again, this started off with not enough testing, not enough vaccines, not enough treatment, not enough case numbers. And again, I want to report good news where, where it exists. The, the CDC is, is making progress, but we still don't have the vaccines. And you heard Governor Hochul say at, at John's breakfast, I mean, he gets the best guess, you know, and she said, we don't have any vaccines here in New York and we're the number four state. By the so, way, breaking news, Stephen Hoffenberg, that once uh, owned the New York Post for about 48 hours, I think, uh, was just found dead. Hmm. Oh, my God. Hmm. I don't know. What do you think it was? We don't. Nobody knows, right? That's not the guy that was friends with. Uh, a Hirschfeld got them. I have no idea. Maybe he got the monkeypox. I don't know. <laughs> that was a joke. Well, that's what, 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 did you, did you hear? Did you hear? Did you hear that the that the the lifespan of New of New Yorkers is down by about three two to three years three over years. the pandemic? Yeah, that's not a surprise. Yes, that's not a surprise. And you know, you know why it they is. got better it's doctors not, in Hawaii. I understand. No, they got Miklos and me here. Come okay. on now. <laughs> the, best, the best doctors are here. Hawaii, they're, they're, they're surfing. They can't, you can't reach them. Their cell phone is in their pocket while they're out there, out there on the surf. But, and George, the, the, the sharks are chasing them on the way in. Very tasty. But I think the reason that we're having a problem here in New York is the garbage in the streets, probably the rat diseases that the rats carry, and the fact that everybody was shut down and didn't, you know, that, that leads to, to a lot of drinking and not good Thank you. you, Dr. Siegel. We're at the end of our time. And Judge Richard Weinberg and Ed Cox, uh, 10 years GOP chair, and Governor David Patterson, Lydia. And what do we stand for? Truth, Truth justice, justice, and the American, American way. way. God bless America. We need God's blessing. Thank you so much. Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024.